Remember that time when you were a kid where you would not sleep unless your parents checked the closet and under your bed for the boogeyman? You laugh about it now knowing that the boogeyman was a fictional character derived from your imagination. Well, that was not the case for the people of New Orleans in 1918 as a manifestation of the boogeyman terrorized the city. I present to you the Axemen of New Orleans. When you think of New Orleans, you think of jazz, as the city is known as the birthplace of jazz music. March 19, 1919, the city was in full swing as all of the dance clubs and bars were filled to the capacity and bands played jazz at parties in hundreds of houses across town. The only thing about the cheerful and jazzy vibe was that it was not played from love, but from fear. In the years 1918 through 1919, the city of New Orleans was hit by a terror of a serial killer called the Axeman. He had the city in panic as its vicious attacks left six people dead and six more severely injured. To this day, the Axeman's identity remains unknown. The first suspected attack was on May 23, 1918. Both victims, Catherine and Joseph Maggio, were not only attacked by an axe, but also had their throats cut by a razor. They were discovered by Joseph's brother, who also lived in the same house. Nothing was heard or seen, and no valuables were taken. The bottom panel of the kitchen door was knocked out, and the only thing found was a bloody axe. Joseph's brother, Jake, and Andrew were initially suspected and put in jail. But Jake was released the following day, but the police held Andrew because they believed his razor was used to commit the crime. Andrew was soon to be released after a few days. The second attack occurred on June 28, 1918. A severely injured Louise Bessemer and Anna Lowe were discovered by a baker making morning early deliveries. Louise survived the attack and Anna survived another seven weeks before dying. Before her death, she recounted to the police that a large white man with a hatchet attacked them. Similarly to the first case, the bottom panel to their bedroom door was missing and the only thing was found was a bloody axe. John Zanka was the suspected attacker of Louis Bessemer and Anna Lowe. He was the baker who discovered their bodies when he knocked on the door of the Bessemer's grocery store and, didn't, and did not receive a response. But later, the police released him because of the lack of evidence. Roughly a month later, Mrs. Ed Schneider was brutally attacked and discovered by her husband, but, and she was soon rushed to the hospital and not only survived, but successfully gave birth a week later. Five days later, on August 10, 1918, Joseph Romano was found by his nieces, Pauline and Mary, after they heard him struggling. The two girls allegedly saw the attacker and described him as dark, tall, heavy-set, wearing a dark suit and a black slouch hat. And because of the consistent murders starting to frighten people, New Orleans newspaper sent out a warning to the Axemen that the people were starting to protect their family while police were actively looking for the person responsible. The warning seemed to work, and for a while the Axeman was off the grid, until seven months later when he attacked the Cordomiglia family. Rose and Charles survived the attack, but tragically their daughter, Mary did not. Five days later, 
A New Orleans newspaper received a letter from the apparent axeman. He not only threatened and assaulted the police, but told the people in New Orleans that he could be so much worse. However, the most important piece of the letter was a specific proposition to the people of New Orleans. The axeman stated that on the night of March 19, 1919, he would roam around town and spare anyone who would listen to jazz music. And it said that that night, jazz music blasted throughout New Orleans and nobody was killed. But on August 10, 1919, Steve Booker was badly injured due to another attack by the axeman. He survived the attack and staggered to a friend's home to call the police. Unfortunately, he couldn't regain his memory of what happened that night. The last attack was on October 27, 1919. The suspected axeman attacked Esther and Mike Pepitoni. Esther survived the attack, but Mike was struck in the head 18 times and died two hours later. Esther saw two figures in the bedroom, but couldn't identify them as they had fled the scene. Now, let's get into some theories of who the axeman could have been. The first theory is that in all the killings were the work of the Axemen. Some speculate that the last victim, Mike Pepitoni, was killed by the Mafia, since his father and him in the past were affiliated with the Mafia, and his father killed a man. The second attack that caused speculation was the attack of Louis Bessemer and Anna Lowe. If you recall, Louis survived the attack, but Anna did not. He was later charged with her murder. Police found letters written by Bersimer in Yiddish and Russian and came to the conclusion that he was a part of a German spy ring. The last strong piece of evidence was that before dying, Anna allegedly blamed Louis and claimed that he was a Nazi spy. Another theory is that the axeman may have been an entity that came at night and squeezed through the back door panel and transformed into the large man that many witnessed to see before their death. Though this is unlikely, cryptids love to believe in such things. The last theory is the legitimate suspect named Joseph Munfrey. If you recall the last Axeman attack on Esther and Mike Pepitoni, Esther survived the attack but her husband unfortunately did not. Esther remembered that before their marriage they had ended a business relationship with a man who went by many names, including Joseph Munfrey. On December 5, 1921, Munfrey visited Esther's home in Los Angeles. He demanded $500, all of her jewelry, and threatened to kill her the same way he killed her husband. But Esther shot Munfrey with a revolver in the back three times and was arrested for shooting him. But she claimed that he was the axeman and had seen him running from her bedroom. She was soon acquitted afterwards because Joseph Munfrey had it coming. And there were evidence that linked to Munfrey to the night of Mike's Pepitoni's death. A few other things that led people to believe that Munfrey was the axeman was that he led a blackmailing gang in New Orleans that targeted Italians, which was similar to Axeman's MO since most of his victims were Italians. Munfrey was also in and out of prison for the past 10 years during the time he was out of prison coincided with the axeman's attack. And with that being said, there wasn't anything much to link Mumphrey to the Axeman's crime. Though I'm not certified, I talked to someone who has credentials. Marion C. Davis. She's the author of Axeman's New Orleans, The True Story, and she agreed on an interview with me. So, uh, Miss Davis, um, questions I have. Uh, the first question is, um, what inspired you to write the book, and what interested you about the Axeman? Well, um, there's a story there. Um, my brother and I were sitting around one day shooting a breeze, 
And um, we, we just got to talking about serial killers because they're just kind of, you know, they're interesting and fascinating in a really scary sort of way. And he told me about uh, uh, a story he'd read long ago, like when he was in seventh grade, about um, a serial killer in New Orleans, Polly Axman. And at the time, my husband and I, well, still, we go to New Orleans quite regularly. And I really like New Orleans. And I just started Googling. And I found the story of the Axman that you see, that you usually hear on podcasts and you you see on the internet, you see in crime anthologies, it's based um, on a chapter in a book by a New Orleans writer named Robert Talent that was published in 1952. And most of what you read on the web about the Axeman is just sort of regurgitation of, of his version. Well, I did some poking around and I found evidence that there was a killing that was very similar to the Axeman killing that nobody else had found. And I just found evidence that, you know, while people had written chapters and books on the Axeman and, and, and websites, that nobody had really gone through the police records and the newspaper records and really looked through the story. So um, I, I determined that I was going to do that. And since I like to go to New Orleans, that, you know, that worked out really well for me. Interesting. <laughs> and, well, and a big question was, in, in, in Robert Talent's um, version, there were mostly, most of the victims were Italian grocers. Uh, but not all of them were. There were a couple of women that were listed, um, and one couple that was not Italian. They were grocers, but they were not Italian. And one of the questions I was really interested in is, was a single person responsible for all those attacks, or were there multiple attackers? And what I found was that when you looked at the evidence, that yes, there was one person who I believe was going around attacking specifically um, Italian immigrant grocers, that, um, you know, these other attacks, when you looked at the evidence, they, they didn't have anything to do with the Axeman. Oh, do you, did you think that around that time there were any discrimination against the Italian immigrants? Um, I do. Uh, in, in the later part of the 19th century and the early 20th century, they were bringing over Italian immigrants into Louisiana, mostly Sicilian immigrants, to work in the sugarcane fields and the cotton fields. And these people were, they were, you know, they were very poor, they were mostly illiterate, but they worked really, really hard. And they, they often, they would save every penny they made. And they, as soon as they could, a lot of them would become like peddlers and store owners. And this was, this was their sort of pathway uh, to success. By the time of the attacks, Italian immigrants or their children, children of Italian immigrants are taking over this niche of, um, uh, of, of uh, corner grocery stores. At this time, there's a grocery store, a small grocery store, like the size of your living room, a small one, on every corner because there's no refrigeration. Um, housewives have to shop for meals, you know, a day. Mm-hmm. So they have to pop down to their, their corner grocery store. 
they're the Italians, the Sicilians are taking over this niche. And what you also have to remember is this is the time of the segregated South. This is a time when the South was literally divided between black and white. And the Sicilians just did not fit in to either one of those categories. They, they, they weren't black, but people didn't consider them quite white. And so they were what, you, what, you, what the historians call liminal. Um, and they were a rising class. So certainly, while they were rising and they were slowly being accepted into society, I would say certainly at this time there um, there's discrimination against Italians, which is why I think they wanted to go to, into business for themselves. Mm. So, from what I research, I did like um, with the deaths of the Italians, the police didn't really investigate much. Did they? They did. They did. I I, I really think they did. Um, the first series of attacks. In 1910 and 1911, the first fatality wasn't until June of 1911. The, the police chief was a guy named Jim Reynolds. And, and I think he did investigate it as thoroughly as he could, but he just hit a dead end. The attacks, um, the attacks stopped. Uh, you know, serial killings, especially when the killer is attacking people he doesn't have a personal relationship with, they're very hard to solve. Um, this is even... More true in this period when there's so comparatively little you can do with forensics. People didn't even know much about serial killers. There's no term for serial killer. They just called him uh, a fiend. When the attack started up again in 1917, 1918, 1919, the police chief was Chief Mooney. I think he really tried. He he consulted... um, scholars who were experts in, in, in psychology. I think he really tried. Uh, he had a detective who was an Italian speaker who was sort of uh, one of the lead detectives on this. Um, but again, they were at such a disadvantage because there were people who were arguing, you know, who didn't believe in such a thing as serial killers, who were arguing that this was just this was a series of burglaries gone wrong. So, so I, I think it is. I think it's true that the police did the best they could under the circumstances. Hmm. So, with the attack, did you think it was coordinated or like random? Well, first of all, I don't think they started out as attempted murders. I I talked to a profiler and to a homicide detective. And based on what they said, I suspect it started out as a burglary, that this person was an experienced burglar. And because of some accident, because of something, he he hit some grocer on the head with his with his weapon, with his with his cleaver, um, because he thought he was waking up, he thought he might identify him or something like that. But he didn't kill him. But I think what he decided is that he liked the blood. You know, some people are just, they like that. They like the sense of power it gives them over other people. And so he attacked again. He attacked another couple. And he didn't kill them, although he wounded them seriously, much more seriously than the first couple. And then the final attack, he finally killed somebody. So I think he was working up to it. 
And I think that he certainly planned the attacks in that he picked out Italian grocers who lived behind or above the grocery store, um, you know, small grocers. But I suspect it wasn't anybody he had a personal relationship with, that they were random in that sense. Oh, that's interesting. I was talking with my friend about that, how either it could have been that the killer, like the grocers might have wronged them in some way. Or that. That's what the profiler said. Oh. That's what the profiler said to me. He said that he he wouldn't be surprised if what had happened is, because this person, the police was pretty sure was a burglar. He thinks that what may have happened is an Italian grocer testified against the burglar and sent him to prison. And that this was his way of going back and getting revenge. So yeah, that that's also a good that's also a possible explanation. Did you? You would be a good profiler. Oh, thank you. I actually want to be a profiler when I'm older. Actually, well, this is a good case to to learn about. Um. So, in in your input, um, do you think it was multiple people? Because most people think it was like a gang or like a mafia but then again the mafia wouldn't attack women or young girls well that's right and what i think is that it, at least one of the so-called axeman attacks uh the one on mike pepitino in um in um october of 1919 he was an italian grocer i don't think that was an axeman attack if you read the original newspaper report he was not hit with an axe. He was hit with a lead pipe. His wife saw two men. Um, the police at the time did not think it was the axe man. He was involved, and in, Mike Pepitone and his father were involved in Italian crime. So I think that one could have, there wasn't, there wasn't what you and I think of as a mafia then in, in New Orleans. There, you know, it wasn't any sort of very sophisticated, highly organized group. Mm -hmm. But there were, you know, gangs of criminals who were Italian. And I think he was involved with the wrong people. And I think that's who attacked and killed him, not the axe man. But most of these attacks, um, I don't think were the work of anybody but a serial killer because as you said when the Italian gangs retaliated they either bombed you or they shot you but there's no evidence that they ever attacked with an axe and they didn't um, they didn't attack women hmm. or children so did you think like the the serial killer like what do you think that makes him like tick because oh, he was like building up so did he have he, prob he probably should have any mental issues at this point well you know there are, there are different kinds of serial killers and some serial killers get fixated on a particular group in society they feel they have to eradicate or that they have a, a grudge against 
And, you know, I think he was the kind that for one reason or other, he had this grudge against Italians. I do think that, you know, his attacks accelerated over time. After a certain point, he always, there's always a fatality. A fatality. Um, like the first two times, he didn't kill anybody. But after um, a certain point, they're always lethal. So, you know, I don't know what he would have, I mean, he probably seemed reasonably normal walking around. I mean, we, we have um, eyewitness accounts that said he was dressed as a working man. So he probably held some sort of job. Or as I said, you know, he's probably a part-time burglar at least. Um but, you know, that's what would be fascinating is to know what, what kind of person uh, person he was. And, and his attacks, I think they got a little bit more frequent over time that, you know, they accelerated because that need, um, you know, my understanding is becomes greater and greater over time. So it's like a calling to him that he needs to take out a certain group of people? Possibly. Possibly, apparently, you know, you know, experts in serial killing today say that, uh, that there's a certain type of serial killer that will fixate on um, on one group of people that they uh, they will attack. I mean, this is pretty unusual um, to fixate on a particular ethnic group like this. I mean, quite often, you know, you'll have men who fixate on, for example, prostitutes. That they think you know they need to be sort of morally cleansed, mm-hmm. but um, but I think that's what's going on here. I think he's fixated on a certain uh, demographic and ethnic group. That's interesting. So um, when you were on the Axeman, did anything stood out to you or like interest you? Well, um, it it was really interesting to me to compare what I found. Um, when I actually went and looked at the records with what I found on the web and what, you know, people said. And and it, it was just surprising to me that people were right about the Axeman who, ha- who clearly hadn't really studied him in any depth. And I was surprised at the amount of new material that I discovered. Um, for example, the, the person that is most usually suggested as a possible Axeman suspect is a, is a, a sort of low-level Italian criminal named Joseph Mumphrey. But I found that he couldn't possibly have been the Axeman, that there are records that show that he was in prison during most of the Axeman attack. He had really, had really examined that closely before, and I found that kind of surprising. Oh, that is because some, when I was researching, well, tried to, I found that people mostly thought Jeffrey Mumphrey was, Joseph Mumphrey was the most, there for the suspect for the Axeman, since they said, like, whenever he was out of prison, that was when the most attack. See, that's what Talent said. That's what Robert Talent said. But it's not true. Because I looked at the prison records. If, 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 you, if you look at my book, get, get a copy of my book. I bet you can get it from the library. Read, there's a whole chapter on, on Joseph Mumphrey. 
And it explains how the records show that he was, in fact, in prison during most of the Axeman attacks. And he had actually been run out of New Orleans uh, by the time of the attacks on uh, on the Cordomiglias in March 19. And, I mean, I can just definitively say he couldn't possibly have been the Axeman. Um, and I think what happened is Robert Talent, when the Axeman attacks took place, Robert Talent was a small boy in New Orleans. And when he grew up, he, uh, he became a writer. And he hung out with a lot of newspaper writers who would have been old enough to remember, you know, the Axeman stories. And I think that a lot of this Axeman stories got garbled in transmission, if you know what I mean. You know, when you're retelling a story after 30 or 40 years, yep. how you can sort of misremember facts. Mm-hmm. And what happened is, in 1920-1921, Robert Mumphrey was murdered in Los Angeles by a woman named Estralbano who claimed that Mumphrey had killed her husband. She was tried in California, and actually she was acquitted. I mean, she, she, she shot him, she emptied two revolvers in him and shot him three times in the back, and the jury acquitted him, acquitted her, basically on the grounds that he had it coming. But in the course of the investigation, the Los Angeles police attacked, uh, um, contacted the New Orleans police and asked about Joseph Mumfrey's criminal records. And so the New Orleans uh, media got kind of a hold of the story, but they, they garbled it. I mean, you know, that was in the days before you could easily make a long-distance phone call or anything. Mm-hmm. And there was a story that appeared in the New Orleans paper that basically said, ah, the Axeman mystery is solved. It's, it's Joseph Mumphrey. But when you actually read the court records and the Los Angeles papers of the trial, you find it's clear that that's not what was shown at, 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 at Estralbano's trial. Am I making myself clear here? I feel like I'm, I'm just no, no, rattling no. on. No, it's okay. You're making yourself clear. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's the, the story. Uh, and remember, this was in the days before, you know, before email, before, as I said, even when it was terribly expensive to make a long distance call. And, it just got a got garbled in transmission, and the I don't think the New Orleans newspaper men had any real easy way to check the story, and so it appears in the loss in the New Orleans paper, and then thirty years later, when people are you know telling the story, retelling the story to talent, it gets garbled again, and he's just reporting what he's been told. And that's why, that's why I think he gets it wrong. Oh, so it's like the telephone game. Exactly. Exactly. And this is why when you are researching um, something like this, it's very important to go to a book or to an article where they've looked at the original sources. Like I've, I've looked at um, the police records at the time, I've looked at the contemporary newspaper accounts. I've looked at coroner's reports. Um, You have to be very careful about what you find on the web that doesn't have any citations to um, either sources that have done original work or original work. 
original sources, I mean. So, um, I mean, for example, if you wanted to, if you wanted to take my book and you wanted to check and see if I got everything right or if one particular fact I got right, if you wanted to check and see if I got it right that Mumphrey was in prison when I say he was in prison, you could look at the sources I cite and you could go look it up and you could check what I said to make sure that I got it right. That's always the kind of source you want to find. Interesting. Wow. In all honesty, I've been wanting to read your book, but since like everything's closed down, I couldn't get a hand uh, of it. <laughs> oh yeah, that is bad. I haven't been able to get any books out of the library either. So, last question. Um, uh huh. Who do you believe was the Axeman? Well, I couldn't identify any specific person. I mean, I really tried. I, I tried to look at, at people who were arrested about the time. I, I just couldn't find, I, I tried to look, uh, pursue some of the suspects that the police picked up. So what I was able to do with the profiler is come up with a profile of a kind of person who was likely to do it. Um, we know it was a white man because we have eyewitness accounts. We know he was a working man because of the way he was dressed. So he was probably he was pro he was probably in his thirties from the eyewitness account. Um, he was probably so working class, not well educated. For whatever reason, as I said, he he developed a grudge against Italians. It might be because. You know, he was a burglar who got sent, sent to prison by an Italian grocery that he broke broke into. It might be because you know his you know that the Italian process of taking over this particular niche in in the grocery business. Maybe his family lost out in competition in business competition to Italians. Um, but it was it was somebody who was sort of working class, not well educated who felt this grudge against this rising immigrant class. Wow. That's really interesting. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Oh, and one last question. Like, how do you... Um, so I have a question about the way he's... What was the reason for the back door panels that he broke? Well, in in um, in some cases, he didn't use the the back door panel. Now, in about I don't know a third half the cases, he did. But sometimes he came in through an unlocked window. Um, sometimes he pried the door open. Basically, he came in the easiest way for him to get in. Uh, he usually he broke in through the kitchen, either the kitchen window or the kitchen door. And I, he just did it the easiest way he could find. If he could pry off the, open the door easily, he using a railroad railroad shoe pin, he'd do that. If um, if he had to take over off the uh, the panel and reach in to turn the the lock, he'd do that. But this is really interesting. Okay, 
in the first set of attacks in 1910 and 1911, he used um, a butcher's lever or a meat axe that he would steal. And sometimes he would abandon it at the scene because he couldn't very well go walking through the streets of New Orleans at two in the morning with a bloody cleaver, right? Yeah. (laughs) But that, but then he switches to a hatchet. I bet I know why. Everybody at that time is going to have an axe or a hatchet in their backyard because they used wood-burning stoves. So he didn't have to go to the trouble of stealing his own weapon. He didn't have to go to the trouble of disposing of the weapon. He could just find the weapon that he knew had to be there somewhere and then leave it. That's actually pretty smart. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. So a lot of this stuff that you'd think is kind of weird, uh, like the axe and uh, the door panel, you know, when you get into the weeds, um, you find that it actually, you, you know, when you look at the context, you can find that it'll actually uh, make sense. Yeah, it actually really does. I was confused on why he used axes, and I was like, why couldn't they get just get rid of the axe? <laughs> <laughs> Well, because, you know, you, everybody has to chop wood then. I never really thought of that. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't think about it until I started researching it, and then it dawned on me. Yeah. <laughs> See, we forget how different the past can be. Yeah. And the Axeman, even though... He was uneducated. He wrote pretty well. Did you? No, think? he didn't. Oh, so nope. that was no. Nope, didn't write the letter. He didn't write the letter. Didn't write the letter. Um. Well, I, you know, again, I consulted with the uh, the profiler and the homicide detective, and they both agreed that it would be extremely unlikely um, for the actual killer to write the letter. Um, as I said, you know, we have evidence that this was a person of a working class background, which means at the time a working class person wouldn't, probably would not be well educated. And the person who wrote that letter was well educated. You have this classical allusion to Tartaros and only somebody who had a sort of classical education would have, would have written like that. So this was a person who was pretty well educated. Um, it's also, if you if you look at the newspaper accounts at the time, it's also pretty clear that most people in New Orleans treated this like a joke. They didn't take it seriously. Now there were some, you know, scared uh, poor Italian immigrants who who probably didn't even read English who who heard rumors who were scared. I mean, I don't want to say that isn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of the New Orleans population treated it like it was a joke and didn't take it seriously. And it was probably some, some I don't know, it might have been a, a frat prank or something. 
it was mean because there was a there was actually a newspaper editorial where a newspaper editor said this was a mean mean thing to do to to these poor Italian immigrants who were scared to death by this by this attacker. But there is I have a theory, and it's only a theory about the person who might have done it. There was a uh, a composer at the time, a jazz composer named uh, Joseph John Davila, who wrote a story about that same time, not a story, but a song about that same time called The um, Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. And he made a lot of money from it. And a lot of interest in the song was generated by that letter, you know, by that letter saying you better stay up and listen to jazz. So I have a hunch that he's the one who wrote uh, wrote the letter. And I don't think he meant to do any harm. I think it was just, you know, meant to be a joke. But when I told the homicide detective about the letter and about the, you know, the, the musician, the composer, he said to me, he's the one who did that letter. What well, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Well, like I said, it's only a theory, but, only um, theory, but... I, I think it makes more sense than that the serial killer. Because if you read the letter, it's got a, it's kind of got a joking quality. Yeah, the dramatic flair. Yeah, yeah, and a and a real serial killer who had a real grudge. I I just don't think would he take it too seriously. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for answering my questions and um sure i'm happy to for your time sure sure well look um if you get a hold of the book and you have any more questions just email me i will thank you so much okay well thank you it's been fun to talk to you it's fun it was really a fun time talking with you too okay well i'll talk to you later if if anything else comes up okay bye okay bye-bye There wasn't much lead to whom the Axeman might be. Was he actually an entity that he describes himself, or an individual with a calling to wipe out Italians? We may never know. For now, this case remains unsolved. <laughs>